This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And today we're going to be talking about a fascinating topic because it is something that I believe every one of us needs to know at least a little bit about, and many of us need to know a lot about, and we all, you know, kind of have a varying degree of knowledge about it. So we're going to be talking about leadership. And so please join me in welcoming Krister Underbach to our program today. Welcome, Krister. Hi there, Deb. I'm happy to be here. You know, this really is going to be so much fun, and, and I love talking about this. But let me tell people a little bit about you before we get started. So Krista Underbach is a keynote speaker, CEO coach, and global expert in the language of leadership. Prior to retiring at age 42, Krista was the award-winning CEO of one of the largest family-owned software companies in the world. His expertise in the language of leadership is based upon his unique experience as a global CEO leading teams in three languages while observing and doing business with executives in over 40 countries, building businesses in six, and living in three. As a corporate keynote speaker, Krister is passionate about sharing the secrets that his team used to win five consecutive top workplace awards and achieve remarkable employee engagement levels of 99.3%. His upcoming book, The Language of Leadership, Words to Transform How We Lead, Live, and Love, will be published in the spring of 2019. So again, Krister, welcome. I'm, I'm happy to be here on the Business Power Hour. So Great. Well, you know, my first thought and, and question is, why do you focus on leadership? Well, I think that, you know, as a CEO of a growing business, I found that what made uh, myself and other leaders who reported to me successful um, by themselves and kind of managing teams of up to kind of three to five people, uh, what made them successful at that level was often the thing that made them less successful when their teams grew beyond kind of five or 10 people. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and given my background learning languages as an adult, I really boiled it down to the words that we use. Right. Um, and so that's kind of where the, the language of leadership was born. Uh, I had the uh, unique opportunity to learn French in my late twenties. Oh my. Uh, I was, um, uh, so we actually started, uh, our business in France shortly after September 11th. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had done s- kind of six years of French in high school. I grew up in the U S and like most people who learn a language in high school in the U.S. and never been to the country, like when I would walk up to people on the street, they, they would talk English back to me because my French was so terrible. Right. They knew. They were like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I, I knew that practice is what I needed. So uh, we had I, our second customer in France was the Palais de Festival de Cannes, which is mm-hmm. the host of the Cannes Film oh, yes, Festival. Yes, the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, so uh, they didn't speak English very well down there. So I said, you know, I think I'll uh, I'll, I'll do the three day workshop myself, and it'll force me to speak French. Mm-hmm. And uh, my French speaking salesperson at the time, we only had six people in in Europe because uh, mm-hmm. we had just started the business. And uh, my French speaking salesperson called me on Monday 
and he said, boss, I, I don't know how to say this, but uh, they said, never send him back here ever again. His oh. French is terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were, you had probably book French <laughs> you know, yes, as opposed yes. to practical French. So, yeah, so I, I, I found, uh, I was pretty aggressive. I found the, what was named like the best business French teacher uh, mm-hmm. in Europe by the European Wall Street Journal. And I was in his house two weeks later um, trying to, to get my, <coughs> my French to an acceptable level. Because mm-hmm. Naturally, to be the leader in a business in France and not being able to speak French was probably not going to bode well for our sales. And the interesting thing about the reason this individual was kind of voted one of the best French teachers in Europe is because he had a very specific way of teaching people language mm-hmm. that required you to really only learn a fraction of the actual language. And so I applied a lot of the same principles that he used to help me to learn French mm-hmm. to helping leaders learn a new language of leadership. So a new way to speak um, and, and and that's what I found is my in my experience I was a pretty for a large part of my career I was a pretty tough leader to work for, and in two thousand it was actually over the course of two thousand seven to two thousand eleven I started to dawn on me that while my heart was in the right place my words were not mm-hmm. and uh, just like learning a new language you know we we can we can be thinking and wanting the right things but if our words are in the wrong place. And that's really the primary thing that people have to judge us, uh, whether our heart's in the right place. So change our words and we can change naturally the perception that people have. And and I found that we can also kind of change our hearts from the outside in. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, you can be a leader at any level. I mean, you know, we're leaders in our homes. We have many people who are volunteer leaders, you know, and then obviously leaders of, of companies. And I love that you say that, uh, you know, many people don't speak the right language, you know, and, and I'm thinking about it from when I was a leader in a big communica- communications department, uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and wasn't always kind of in sync, maybe would, would be the, the best way to put it. Because, you know, we get in our minds some of the things where we think this is what we need to say or do. And it's not right. Um, you know, and, and we're not saying you need to know everything about the company. I mean, you know, the company mm-hmm. I worked for sold life insurance. I could not have told you very much about actual life insurance. But I didn't yeah. need to. That wasn't my job. Um, but sometimes that's where we get caught up is we don't know exactly what it is that we're, we need to be saying. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, I think your point of even if I'm not leading a, you know, 10 person business or a 50 person business, what I found was most powerful about the language of leadership is it applies equally well with kids in our, you know, marital relationships or romantic relationships. And it, and if you're going to learn a new language, you may as well practice it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I look at the language of leadership, it's not really about purely leadership in a professional context. It's also about leadership in a in a relationship, leadership mm-hmm. as a parent, uh, and leadership as a friend, or you know any other kind of context. And so that's partly where you know being the CEO of a you know one of the largest family owned businesses in the software software businesses in the world is. You, you can't really break the family part apart from the mm-hmm. the business part because the business owners are family. So right. it all gets kind of mixed together. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that my unique, one of the things that I kind of unique perspectives I bring to business aside from the international aspect is this kind of blended um, 
you know, language, how it applies to family and in personal relationships, where often the stakes are higher and, you know, it's really hard to manage your family or delegate to your mm-hmm. family and give, give them tasks. You have to adjust your words a little bit. And what I found is those words that we use <clears throat> with family often actually work pretty well with employees as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it's actually a, it's a good, it's a good balance, right. especially in more sensitive situations. It's funny. I just had this vision of a three-year-old doing the why, why. (laughs) (laughs) And you also have employees who they might not be quite so blunt about it, but there's, you know, why do you want me to do that? That's not in my job description or why are we doing it this way? You know, and and so it is true. It it crosses over um, between, you know, basically our entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't, I think that that's what I get excited about is that, you know, is really breaking it down to the specific words to use to ask questions differently and to speak differently uh, so that people can really leave with concrete examples. Again, one example is a simple example is I used to found my, find myself giving advice in the form of questions. Well, actually, sorry, it started off just giving advice and telling mm-hmm. people what to do. And then, I, then one of my mentors said, well, you have to make it their idea. So I started, okay, well, so how can I ask questions to lead them to my solution? Right. <laughs> and keyword there, your solution. Exactly. So, you know, be like, so Deb, have you considered uh, firing that person? Have you considered raising the price or, you know, whatever. It's basically mm-hmm. a suggestion disguised as a question. And right. then one of my VPs, just, you know, who I had a good relationship with, just kind of interrupted me and said, you, know, you clearly know what you're going for here. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just give me the answer to the test? And we right. had a lot shorter conversation. And that was, so I realized that, you know, it is, it's not really about leading people to my solution. It's about leading them to their solution. And, uh, and so just changing questions, some simple language things you can do is if you simply ask a question that always starts with the word what or how, it is nearly impossible to give advice um, uh, framed as a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always going to lead you to kind of an open-ended conversation. Um, right. You know, and sometimes it is, it has to be your way. <laughs> but mm-hmm. most of the time it doesn't, you know, and, and obviously the, you know, the, there are situations, as I said, where it, it, you know, it's okay, this is the way it has to be done. Do it that way. But, you know, even in those situations, you can tweak things, you can do a process differently, all these various things. And so, you know, one of the, we're talking words here. Of course, one of the words that springs to mind is empowering, you know, to empower your employees yeah. to feel like they can say, hey, Krister, have we thought about doing it this way instead? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that a big part of it, you know, a, a big part of the empowering people is giving them permission to mm-hmm. simply challenge you. Yeah. So I think that uh, as a leader, especially we have to recognize that you know, people who are, where we're basically paying their paycheck are, you know, it's like we have a big sign on our head, you know, that says, I can fire you. Uh, Mm -hmm. So unless we give them explicit permission to push back, then Mm -hmm. they most likely won't. Uh, Unless you have the the, the smaller part of the percentage of people who are, you know, highly assertive. So we need to be really um, explicit about saying, hey, if you disagree or you think this is really not going to work, um, because of what you know that maybe I don't know, then please tell me. And then the, the next and most important thing is, uh, is the first time someone does that, we need to actually, even if we disagree with what they're saying, we need to encourage the behavior that they are pushing back. Otherwise, 
if, you know, Deb, I say, Deb, I really am interested in your feedback and I really want to know if you think, and then the first time you tell me that you think I'm wrong, if I'm like, just shut you down, then that'll be the last time right. you tell me that you think mm-hmm. I'm wrong, right? So, and, and if that first time, maybe the idea really is, I just need to separate to say, hey, thank you for the feedback. Let me think about it for mm-hmm. 15 minutes or something. And I can always come back 15 minutes later thank you again, say, wow, it took a lot of courage to really stand up to me. That's really important. However, in this particular case, I would like to, uh, you know, let's, let's try it my way and, uh, and let's go forward. So that's, it's, again, it comes down to the language of how we do it. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of language, is there a difference between being a leader and being a manager? Yeah, so I, I usually use the, I usually, ref, yeah, I know there's all those memes on the internet about how the manager does this or a boss oh, yes, does this. Yes, the leader like gives people permission. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually, just this is my term, I usually refer to a leader as somebody who's really got more than 25 people, uh, is more broadly, um, that they are in their span of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that, you know, obviously leading in general, I mean, my, my definition of just leading is really, do people want to follow you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that one of the challenges we have is, and I, and I even found this in part of my career, there, were, there was a time when, you know, while I considered myself a leader, I even considered, you know, read a lot about servant leadership and kind of the, the things that, you know, putting employees first, um, that when I shifted my definition to an uh, an employee or a follower focused definition, I can call myself a leader, but if people are choosing not to follow me, then I'm not a leader, right? right. So by flipping the way I define leadership in my own mind uh, really f- holds me, forces me to hold myself accountable to a higher, uh, a kind of a higher level or a higher bar of what leadership is. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, we can always have leaders who aren't the people who are in charge. Exactly. You know, and, and that's where it gets tricky because the in charge person has really got to have their act together to, to deal with that situation. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I think the other way is, you know, dealing, I usually say if a leader is not somebody who's got 25 people reporting to them, it's, you know, it's somebody who is typically a, a top performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way leaders want to be led is very different from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most people who are the kind of top performers uh, who lead by their performance, right? So mm-hmm. my experience has been that those are the types of people that they don't want to be given the answers. They don't want to be given detailed instructions for how to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like your listeners. They're the top performers. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like uh, for much of my career, I would kind of, you know, was trying to like think about like, how could I create, if everyone could just do it the way I would do it, then, uh, then we would be so much more successful or whatever. Right. So I was giving very detailed instructions, trying to train people. And I found that that worked really well with everyone except the top performers who tend to get three to five times as much done as everyone else. Right. <laughs> so, uh, it's really about shifting that style to know who are those people that, really prefer minimal direction uh, and can come back and surprise you Mm -hmm. um, so that we don't kind of uh, whatever smother the fire uh, within those people who will work hard and and do great things uh, by giving them too much, too much direction. Mm -hmm. You know, and it gets tricky when maybe they're the, the de facto 
team leader, group leader, you know, whatever it is, but they're not the in-charge person, if their goals and mission aren't the same thing as, as overall, um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. Of course, we do have things that happen in the negative way where we've got the person who people are following, you know, they're, they're looking to them for guidance and deliberately sabotage, or, you know, maybe not even not so deliberately, but, you know, the, everybody has to be on the same page. And, and it comes back to exactly what you were sta- saying at the start. It's all about communicating and communicating correctly and appropriately. I mean, you know, the yeah. worst thing would be to tell that person, shut up, I'm in charge. Because the people who follow them are like, uh-uh, no, no. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had a, I had a, I had an, an interesting experience two or three months ago. So, uh, where was it? Well, I Anyway, it was a couple of months ago. I was in New York City and um, I was at a workshop and I found myself talking to a guy who, and he's talking about his feelings, a uh, big muscular, heavily tattooed guy. And he's talking to me about his feelings about being released from maximum security prison after spending 20 years in prison for murder. Mm-hmm. Did and, you take uh, a step back? Yeah, and he's talking about the he's talking about the 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 language mm-hmm. that actually transformed his life. And mm. coincidentally, it's the same language that Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella used as the uh, the basis for uh, transforming the culture at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And one of the big one of the big uh, takeaways of that the, the the person who created this this work was uh, not the guy who was in, uh, in in maximum security prison, but the person who kind of created the workshop and the and the the language was uh, that listen for people's needs, not their words. So mm-hmm. that that person you know like who's in the team meeting, who's kind of monopolizing all of the airtime. If we think of, if we listen from the perspective of what is that person needing versus what are the words that the person is speaking, then we start thinking like, so why does that person have a need to speak mm-hmm. so much in the meeting? You know, is, do they need appreciation? Do they need recognition? You know, what's going on there? And I think that the same thing applies to, you know, what, what I started applying that filter to myself as a leader, if I've have a need to tell people to do things exactly the way that I want them to do. What, what is it? What is my need? I mean, am I I afraid? Am Mm -hmm. I afraid that something doesn't get done correctly, that my business is going to fail? Or do I just have a need to be right? uh, Mm -hmm. So that to kind of for my own self-esteem or self-worth. So by kind of listening, um, I also find a lot of those kind of leaders that you mentioned kind of have maybe the expertise who kind of get into team leader positions. Uh, a lot of times, you know, especially those leaders who kind of have a line outside of their office or, you know, 200 emails a day in their inbox that they have to reply to, uh, often the need that they're filling is this need to kind of, by being the expert and being the go-to person, it fills some need in them of, you know, often a self-esteem or appreciation mm-hmm. or uh, something along those lines. So the more we as leaders and peers can listen for those kinds of things, then we can be more connected to really understanding kind of the dynamics of what's happening in our teams. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had guests on before who have talked about that. And, and in the context that I had them on, we were talking about workplace bullies. Mm-hmm. You know, why are they the, you know, why are they like that? And in many cases, it's fear. You know, they think, well, if, if I'm not acting like I'm the one in charge, then I'm not needed. 
or, you know, uh, they'll think that I don't know how to do my job, all those various things. And so I love that you talk about, you know, figuring out what it is that they need. And and maybe it is that just every once in a while they need an attaboy or an girl, you know, and, and or, you know, so, and I think so many times leaders don't want to do that because that's the, the, you know, I jokingly say, you know, the kumbaya skills. Yeah. And it's also, you know, no matter what, you have the people, well, that's not my job. They should just do what I say they should do. And of course, that comes back to they're not being a leader then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's this uh, the thing of they should just do what I say they do. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we are bosses. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was a pretty directive and uh, direct leader for most of my career. What I found is that um, if someone, if someone, if you could put a, you know, percentage effort, um, and I'm saying you should just do what I tell you to do. Um, even your top performers are not going to be putting 100% of their effort, uh, mm-hmm. behind something, uh, when they're told that way, especially right. if it's something they don't agree with. Right. Mm-hmm. So they'll so, do just what they need to do. Exactly. So really, if my if I look at my job as a leader to maximize the output of my team, uh, not to get people to do what I ask them to do, but maximize the output of my team, um, then then now I shifting my perspective from telling them what to do to kind of getting them excited about what they're going to do. Um, that that's that makes all the difference because if they're only going to put ten percent of the effort in, if I tell them what to do and give them detailed instructions, then I haven't done anything. I've actually done my my actions as a leader have reduced the output of the team rather than maximized it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's curious and difficult to do because every person you lead, and whether you've got a team of two or twenty or two hundred, I mean, they have so many different personalities. And so there are times, of course, where you just have to say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Um, you know, you, we can't, there's only so much flexibility we have, you know, all these various things, but there are obviously ways to do it in a way that, as you mentioned before, doesn't stifle somebody. Yeah. Well, I think one of those ways is, you know, like, so let's take it, let's say it's a process of the way you do business or whatever. Um, you know, one way to at least, is to just say, this is the way it needs to be for the next three or six months to just set a time frame at which point we may reevaluate right. uh, doing it differently. So it's not necessarily going to be forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find also young people like millennials that come in with new ideas. Sometimes it's just not the right timing. You know, I've right. got 10 other priorities mm-hmm. and, um, and it's important to differentiate between saying no and saying not now. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is a great idea. However, over the next 60 to 90 days, we've got a bunch of other priorities. Please, can we, you know, almost set a date on mm-hmm. January 1st. Let's, let's have a conversation again about that great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that person doesn't then feel like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, that's the last time I bring an idea. Right. Uh, well, and of course, the important thing is that you've made a note, you know, so that, that you approach them on January 1st and say, remember that idea that you brought to me? Because, you know, and, and because if, if you're relying on them to bring it back up, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. But when you remembered it, you know, even if you put a note in your calendar, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be anything mm-hmm. very complicated. They're like, ooh, wow. Okay, he remembered that. He thought it was important enough 
that he made a note to 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 circle back with me. You know, he, I love the terminologies. Yeah, I, I would I would probably go a little bit on the maybe my my approach. It would depend if I really want to make an impact on that specific individual, mm-hmm. then I would make a note. Right. Uh, but that would be like the exception more mm-hmm. from a time management perspective. Mm-hmm. I tend to kind of set the, I, I, as a leader, I tend to set the expectation with all of my direct port reports. And this would include like, um, you know, suppliers or whatever mm-hmm. to say, you know, I, my expectation is that you're going to kind of ping me on those things because right. often you're going to know whether that idea no longer applies mm-hmm. 60 or 90 days from now. Um, well, and you can only keep so many things, you know, that, that you're tracking. And, and if it's that important to them, they should remember it also. Exactly. So part of my kind of prioritization is I kind of just set the expectation with people to say, hey, you know, if we have a meeting, uh, I'm not going to make notes of like, what are the 10 things that you need to do? Mm-hmm. My expectation as a leader is that you're going to make those notes and you're going to come back to me kind of in our next meeting or whatever. And you're going to give me proactive updates on those by pushing the responsibility onto the other person. Um, then now as a leader, I can also, if I have three or four people, I'll sense which people are organized, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the people who are proactively coming back to me. In the initial phases after setting up that expectation, I may have to go back to people and say, hey, I really want to, you know, and establish the norms of what kind of communication I'm looking for so Mm -hmm. they know exactly what I'm looking for. But once that rhythm is established, now I as the leader look across those three to five people and, you know, it gives me information. If one person never gives me updates and another person is very detailed about the updates and proactive about getting things done, then I know all other things equal that that's the person that I'm going to give more tasks to is mm-hmm. the person who's more proactive. And I can go back to the person who's not and say, Hey, you know, this is what I'm seeing from others right. and I'm expecting more of this kind of behavior from you in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they might just not know what it is that you need. Exactly. You know, and, and we've, you know, we've all either seen that happen or had it happen to us where the boss said, you know, I was expecting X from you. You were? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Um, You know, and and so it's like you said before, it's back to that communication and making sure it's clear. I mean, you know, if you want to report from somebody in 90 days, they need to know it's 90 days. It's not 60 so that they panic or it's not 120 and they think, yeah, I can put it off. Yeah. I think that the, I was just writing a, the chapter in my book about requests, which kind of gets into delegation. I think that there are a couple of things that we tend to frequently, we tend to, um, if it's not a one-on-one conversation, especially if it's like a group meeting, uh, we tend to, as leaders tend to not be clear on exactly who they're asking to do something. It's mm-hmm. just kind of, there's a task there. Right. And it's like hoping that somebody's going to kind of jump <laughs> Somebody on. Somebody will do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we don't, we don't make it clear. And then, you know, we as a leader might be frustrated, like, Hey, how come nobody did that? You know, there was actually a study done a number of years ago where somebody was standing on like a street corner in uh, it was a kind of bunch of psychologists uh, running a street. Uh, somebody stood on a street corner, pretended to have a heart attack and just said, someone help me. And, you know, it's a busy street corner in the middle rush mm-hmm. hour in New York city. People are just trying to get to their jobs and everybody's assuming, well, one of these, yeah, somebody will help is going to walk by and help this person who's having a heart attack on the ground. And so they just simply by shifting the experiment where the person would point to someone, make contact, make eye contact and say, you help me, mm-hmm. the, the response rate shot up significantly. Right. 
but it's the same thing. You see these emails that, you know, in a corporate environment where somebody will send out an email with 15 people on the distribution list or in the, in, in CC, mm-hmm. saying, hey, somebody needs to take care of this. Well, right. it's the exact same principle. Every one of those 15 people is saying, well, there's one of these other 15 people is going to take care of that. And so it doesn't get done. Mm-hmm. So we need to be explicit about who we're asking to do it and then when we want it to get done. Um, so that we, uh, so that we're clear. And then I think the other thing is also sometimes, and this is also with clients, uh, cause we did a lot of project management where we were reliant on clients to give us, uh, information back. And, uh, sometimes it's also important to be explicit about the consequences of what's going to happen if I don't get it by this date. So mm-hmm. like, I need something from you, my customer in order to, you know, meet your needs. Mm-hmm. Hey, I need it by Friday at noon. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to miss your deadline. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, and I think that's another little subtle thing about deadlines is expressing them in date and time, right? Uh, so that there's something about saying Friday at noon that most people just have like a little kind of mental. Even if they didn't put a reminder, it's like, what was that? What was the thing I was supposed to do by Friday at noon? Mm-hmm. You know. And it kind of, it creates a, but if you just say Friday or later this week, you don't get that kind of automatic kind of reminder in our heads of mm-hmm. what were we supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that, you know, we have to be specific. Um, when I worked for the big insurance company, one of the things I had to do was write press releases and press releases for large federally regulated companies <laughs> are very difficult. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that is in the CC process. And, you know, and and, I mean, that was fine. I understood. I had no problem with that. But I also learned very early on that 99% of those people really didn't want to have any input, but Mm -hmm. they wanted people to think they did. You know, (laughs) they didn't want to be left off the list is maybe the the better way to put it. And so I would very specifically say in there, you know, to if, especially, you know, because legal was probably the big thing who really had to approve stuff. If I have not heard from you by... Friday mm-hmm. at noon, and and it was in red and it was in bold, so that way they couldn't say I didn't see it. Um, yeah. I you know I will assume you have no comments. Yes, and it only happened one time where somebody came back and said, "Yo, I didn't read the email." Um, but it, and it, people said, "Well, I had people that said, well, you know, that's kind of obnoxious.'" And I said, "No." It's how I have to get their attention. Um, yeah. And, you know, to the people who thought it was obnoxious, okay, well, there are probably a lot of things they thought were obnoxious. But, um, you know, and, 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 yeah, putting those deadlines to it, then they respond. If I had just said, I need your response, everybody <laughs> yeah. went, oh, and then nobody gave me anything. Exactly. But I think that, that uh, you know, when you frame it that way, it's it, it's also have you heard of the the RACI framework the R A C I who's responsible who's accountable who needs to be consulted and who needs to be informed Ah, I like um, that. So there's a uh, people can Google it. It's on uh, on Wikipedia, but mm-hmm. for especially for complex things, it's it's really useful. You know, if you're in project management setting or you're kind of working through other people who don't report to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, third-party companies, suppliers, whatever, right. to really be clear on, okay, who is the person who's responsible, the person who's going to actually do this work, be, mm-hmm. you know, do the task mm-hmm. themselves, who's the person who's accountable, who's usually like not the person doing the work, but they're like, if it's done incorrectly, they're still the one who's kind of- <laughs> They're the, the one line. who's, you know, what is on the line. Yeah. So the person who's going to be overseeing it. Um, 
then who needs to be consulted? So, you know, that press release, you know, these are the people that need to be consulted and I need to get their input. Uh, that, you know, let's say you had a very strict process, like these people, five people need to respond. Yes, I'm okay with it. That, mm-hmm. Now we're being explicit. They need to be consulted and I cannot sh- send the press release until they have explicitly said, yes, it's good. And the people who need to be informed are those other 50 people on the thing that say, hey, here it is. If you have feedback, then whatever. But if not, now at least you know that this is mm-hmm. what's going on. Right. And there's usually a lot of people that are like that for whatever reason, um, you know, positive and negative. Like I said, you know, there are those that don't, you know, they, they don't want to be left out. But, you know, say it's a new product. Well, there's a lot of people that need to be in the know without being in the process. Exactly. Yeah. And, and by explicitly separating out who needs to be consulted or who needs to be informed, you can keep the decision making tight. Like if you're changing a process of how you do something, there's probably tons of people who need to be informed, but there's a much smaller group of people who need to be consulted Mm -hmm. to determine whether the change we're going to make is actually a better, an improvement or not. Right. Well, and of course it's tricky because you need to have not only the, the, the right people involved, but the right number. Because, you know, again, there might have a whole bunch of people that want input when really it's like five people. Um, you know, and so back to the communication skills. You need to know how to appropriately tell them, thank you very much for your input, but Bob's going to be helping me on this today. And, and, you know, things like that so that they know, okay, it's still getting done, but, I, you know, I, I don't have to be involved. Yeah, exactly. So it it was interesting. One of the notes that I made was when you were talking about the fact that a leader is someone that you want to follow. And my my first thought was, so it's not a job title. You know, it's not the president, the department manager, the the whatever. It's so you're not a leader simply because of your title. Um, And I think that's sometimes where a lot of people who maybe got promoted or started a business or, you know, things like that. They expect that you will follow them because they have that title. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I can think that that I I mean, clearly I had the title. I was my first management job. I was probably 22 years old, 23, um, running IT projects. <clears throat> and it wasn't until like this, you know, the, for me, the definition of a leader is someone who inspires followership. So mm-hmm. it inspires people to choose to want to follow. And it's really haunted me. I didn't kind of, I, I, so I say inspiring followership is the definition of a leader. The, mm-hmm. I didn't really have words for it at the time, but it kind of haunted me since 2004 when we opened our offices in Germany mm-hmm. and we were considering acquiring a competitor out of bankruptcy. And I was interviewing some of their people. We were deciding, should we acquire them or just hire their three or four best people? And then they'll kind of fall, fall, fall away anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, we had just decided to hire their three or four best people. But so I was interviewing one of those really good people and she was telling me about the, like the third time that she didn't get paid, you know, like three months in a row, she didn't Eek. get paid. And she was talking about how she was afraid she's not going to make her, you know, monthly payment for mm-hmm. her mortgage. And I started thinking like, wow, would my people follow me if they didn't get paid for three months? Right. And, you know, so yeah, this was like one of their better employees, right? So certainly maybe our, some people who can't get a job anywhere else would continue to follow, mm-hmm. hopefully some of the average performers. But would the best people, the ones who can kind of, you know, just start accepting in-mails on LinkedIn from recruiters and have- right. <laughs> can easily go somewhere else. Yeah. Would those people follow? And I think mm-hmm. that when we think about leadership in that context- you know, I, I often will ask, uh, 
you know, people, I think it's, there's a, most of the people who are maybe, you know, not the best leaders uh, or people who, you know, don't want to be, you know, many people don't want to follow. Often they don't, they may not consciously know it. Mm -hmm. uh, so having more open conversations uh, and encouraging people to really speak up is probably the first step. So building awareness. Mm -hmm. um, so the language that I encourage leaders to do with that is really to sit down and say, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, knowing what I can improve. And it comes down to asking questions kind of often on a really exaggerated scale. So like I would ask you, you know, Deb, I would ask you say, Deb, so on a scale of one to 10, 10 being I am the best boss on the face of the planet. And one being I am the absolute worst boss on the face of the planet. Mm -hmm. Like just where would you put me here? So my intention is by putting this super exaggerated scale, um, I'm allowing, you know, I'm allowing you to say even a six or a seven, you know, on this exaggerated scale is actually, is actually okay. pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm also by exaggerating on the really negative side, you know, if you go home and you're like, God, that Christopher, he's a real pain in the butt. I just mm -hmm. hate working for him. You're probably, you, you may not say, no, he's not really a one. He's not the worst boss on the face of the but planet. But he's a three. He's a three, which is still better than a one because you're mm -hmm. like, you know what? It could be worse. Right. Mm-hmm. But the other point that happens here is no matter what you, so let's say you say a three, I can say, well, what's the difference between a three and a five for you? What mm -hmm. can I specifically start doing or stop doing that would allow us to move up the scale? Mm -hmm. uh, and so by changing the language of how I ask the questions and being open to the responses, um, then you know, I, I can start getting more kind of real feedback on what specific behaviors I'm doing that I could do to increase someone's kind of commitment level. Mm -hmm. Well, and people have to know that there's, it, it, it's safe. I mean, you know, I'm, I wouldn't tell you, oh, Krista, you're a three if I thought you were going to fire me if I didn't say you were a nine. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the first, yeah, I think first step is if you – part of creating that safety is sometimes doing it in a group setting to say, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, if I'm standing in front of 10 people and I say, no one's going to get fired for telling me the honest, uh, their honest opinion here, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, it's probably going to come up in the next couple of days by doing that in front of a group setting. People are more likely to believe it. Now, mm -hmm. if you're, if, if people really have extremely low trust, they're still not going to believe it. <laughs> right. But, and, um, and that is a totally different issue. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking to people who are listening, who are people who genuinely want to improve. Mm -hmm. So you'll find that it will be much more well-received or at least much more likely to, to yield positive results if you kind of announce something like that in more of a group meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then, you know, recognize if there are any negative consequences those people on people who would give negative answers, then, you know, you, you've already said in front of the entire group, there weren't going to be negative consequences. Right. So. Well, and you're going to have to be prepared for a gamut of responses. I mean, somebody might think you're a horrible boss because you never refill the coffee pot. <laughs> you know? And and other ways they're pretty happy with you, but you know, they they you know and and so you you can't poke fun, you can't really. You'll know, say, "Oh, okay, I'll do I'll do better about that." Or you know, but more than likely it's going to be things like you don't respond timely. Or, you know, you, you're unfair to employees, you favor somebody, you know, a lot of things like that. But yeah, yeah I mean, some of the answers are probably going to be a little out there and you're going to think, wow, okay. Yeah. 
And I think that the other, the other thing somebody counseled me is that when you have a conversation like that, sometimes plant, um, you know, especially if you, let's say you have it with three or four different people, you may say, already give some things you've heard from other people. Right. Like, hey, I've heard this. So mm-hmm. you're, you're giving some negatives. Mm-hmm. And then at the, the final step in the conversation is I often will say, so like, what's the last 10%? Like usually the point, what's the part that you kind of were hesitating? Like, I don't know, will I really be able to tell them that? Because mm-hmm. that's the part where probably that's the, the meat learning is. And so, and then kind of just let that sit. And some people, um, you know, sometimes you could even say, hey, could I come back and give you a day? And I'd like to hear that last 10%, the part mm-hmm. that you kind of, yeah, you were not, I'm not really sure if I'm going to actually share that with them. Mm-hmm. Um give people a little bit more time to think about it um, and their words. And, uh, and, and you might get those kind of the things that are truly the nuggets. They're going to be like, wow, I had no idea mm-hmm. that I, that I was being perceived that way. Right. And I'm guessing that those nuggets are something that they probably need to find also, you know, it's, it, they've got their, you know, their top 10 things that really annoy them, but it is that one thing that, but that really gets them, but they, they just don't even realize it either until they've stopped and really thought about it and thought, okay, if you changed this, what would happen? Yeah. And I think that that going back to that question I asked earlier, when you ask people on a scale of one to 10, so, you know, 10, I'm being the best boss on the face of the planet. You know, what happens is you, people choose which end of that scale they're going to start with, right? Mm-hmm. Are they charging starting with the good end or the bad end? Mm-hmm. So let's say you're on the good end, right? So they say, well, not a 10. And what happens in that split second, whether it's 10 or 15 or 30 seconds before they respond, is they're actually calculating in their head, well, you're not a nine because of this. So you're an eight, whatever. <laughs> so it leads, it leads to the follow-up question is, if I just say, am I a good boss? Then people would say, you know, if they, if they really thought no, then they're uh-huh. just going to say yes. So right. you just didn't get a, an accurate answer. Mm-hmm. But even if they do say, yes, I do think you're a good boss, and you say, well, what could I do to get better? They haven't actually thought about that question yet. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them on a scale of one to 10, they have, because they actually had to make some of those determinations to determine whether they said six, seven, eight, or nine. Mm-hmm. So it makes the follow-up question of what can I do better much, you know, much more kind of readily at, the, at, at someone's kind of, you know, it's right on the top of their head. Mm-hmm likely. Right. Well, Krista, one of the things that I'm thinking about is, you know, even if people know that you're open to hearing these things and all these various things, they still might be hesitant to to have these discussions. So does it help to have an outside facilitator come in and and have some of these talks and and these maybe workshops or, you know, whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think that what I found is, you know, if you have a large enough team, uh, but it really needs to kind of be Generally, if there's 15 or 20 people that you can ask, doing an anonymous 360 survey is probably the most powerful way. Okay. Um, I did one of those. Uh, I, actually, I have I have yet to see a leader who's done an, a, an anonymous 360 survey with a large group mm-hmm. that hasn't really had some major realizations come out of that. Now, mm-hmm. the, the key is it needs to be a large enough group that people feel that there's a degree of anonymity, right? right. If, mm-hmm. if I survey three people and like, you know, Bob's like, yeah. of course yeah. he's going to know that this is my mm-hmm. response, right? <laughs> so uh, usually the transformative 360s are 
often facilitated by an external party to make sure that people feel that the responses are truly confidential. Mm -hmm. um, 15 or 20 people, usually using some kind of online survey. And then the facilitator goes back to three to seven of those people for an actual inter confidential interview to get kind of background color, you know, more comments on what's actually working. And the other thing that I found that was really powerful is if, if uh, which is difficult if you use an, you know, if it's managed internally by an HR department in a large company, but if you use an external party, um, actually crossing over people from your personal life and your professional life. Mm. Uh, because what happens is, and I did this, and I think most leaders I work with tend to compartmentalize and we think mm -hmm. we act a lot differently in a professional setting than we mm -hmm. do at home. But in reality, we don't. We may right. use different words. We may, use so we may be softer or whatever, but fundamentally the same themes come out. And so as so I was in a, uh, when I did the, uh, the 360 that I did, I was in, sitting in the back of a room and this guy is in his 80s named Dr. Gerard Bell. He'd been studying uh, leaders for, I don't know, like 60 years. I mean, he's in his 80s, right? So he's got tens of thousands of data points. And he's sitting here and in the back, he's, you know, he, everybody's got a graph of where they scored on his, you know, his model or whatever. And he said, if your number on this, uh, let's say the competitiveness, uh, competitor dimension is, you know, above 180, um, then, uh, then you were probably raised in an environment where your parents were kind of critical and, you know, gave mostly negative feedback and not, not as much positive feedback. And I'm sitting in the back of this room with a hundred people and there's like 50 people, all leaders, like some senior leaders with 50, hundred people in their organization mm -hmm. nodding like, Oh man. And I'm, I'm one of those people nodding because my mm -hmm. score is 199 out of 200. Right? Oh. It's over 180. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is a bad thing. You don't want to be at the top of this <laughs> Right. So, you know, so what does it take to get a 200? Yeah, we don't give 200. So mm -hmm. I had basically the highest score you could have on this one dimension. And from, and th these were people that 20 people who had reported to me over the course of the kind of three to five years prior. And based on the results of a 360 survey, he is telling me, here's how, Krister, you were parented when you were a child. Hmm. And so the, the net of the story was, and he said, and if this is how you were parented as a child, this is how you're leading your people because you're modeling the way you were parented. Right. And you know what? 99% chance you're actually parenting and dealing with people in your personal, in your personal life the same way. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to just fix this because it's going to make you a better leader at work. But it might just it might just be the difference between getting divorced or not, mm -hmm. or having a good relationship with your children. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's fundamentally kind of the you know if I would say the the core behind this language of leadership, uh, being a more emotionally intelligent and you know like kumbaya kind of softer leader, um, developing the language of leadership that makes us softer leaders, but equally effective. And I would argue more effective. Right. The reason we want to do that is because it also makes us much more effective in our personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, we joke, there's, there is no such thing as work-life balance. You know, you, you don't turn it off and turn it on. It's, you know, you're that no matter what, you know, you're thinking at midnight about emails you need to respond to. And when you're in a business meeting, you're thinking about what your kid is doing in soccer that day. I mean, you know, it, it all crosses over. And so how you come across to everybody 
is the same in, in, but you're right. You know, sometimes they, you tweak it a little bit, but for the most part, if you're a gruff, grumpy person, you're a gruff, grumpy person all the way around. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had, uh, when I, when I left, when I retired from my business, um, shortly before that, I, uh, came across some research by the, um, I actually had a, a conversation with one of the, basically the most renowned, uh, researcher into kind of divorce and relationships. And he has, uh, Things like these four behaviors that if he watches a 20 minute video of a couple, he can predict whether they'll get divorced with divorced with like uncanny accuracy based on the presence of four behaviors. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at those four behaviors and I looked at all of the kind of broken relationships in business, whether it was breakdowns between business partners or top salesperson leaving or, you know, the big customer where we just couldn't get along because they had a tough person, you know, leading, mm -hmm. uh, leading the relationship from their side. Those four factors were present in every single one of those cases. Ooh. And so the, the, the net of it was, is these same four predictors of divorce could have easily predicted over $50 million in lost revenues, profit, mm -hmm shareholder value in my business. Right. And, uh, and so understanding those things, uh, is pretty critical to kind of, you know, to, to making sure that both what works in business, uh, and also what works at home. And you, you know, you talked about a lot of those people who, you know, maybe are not leading huge teams. If we understand that these four factors are also present in our, you know, typically in our marriages or in our relationships with our kids or, mm -hmm. or aging parents for that matter, mm -hmm. um, knowing those and being able to recognize them, uh, certainly allows us to be, well, imagine in a divorce situation, like, I mean, for most people, any, any of my lawyer friends would say the cost of a divorce divorce is, you know, if you're the primary earner is going to be 50% of your net worth. So mm -hmm. that, that might be a fairly sizable financial reason right. to get a sense on, get a better sense mm -hmm. of these, uh, you know, some of these things. Right. Well, you know, it, when I said your bio, I mentioned the fact that you have uh, done business with executives in over 40 countries and built businesses in six. Culture or uh, culture has got to play a role in leadership. Um, you know, I, I specifically say that as a female. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you find kind of in, in general, because, uh, you know, that is something that kind of, t you know, is overarching as well as, you know, some specific country things? Um, you know, I think that there's, it's, it's pretty, uh, yeah, to, to really generalize, I, I mean, I have, one example I thought was that was interesting that uh, I found in the U.S. Um, so American leaders more frequently tend to ask for faster updates. At least I, mm. like the, most mm -hmm. of the leaders that I modeled would say, "Hey, here's a project," and then fairly early in the project, you know, let's say it's a three or four week long project, go two or three days later and say, "Hey, how's it going?" Right. right. Uh, because I want to kind of, if you're going in the wrong direction, I would rather know that three days mm -hmm. into the project than thirty days into the project. Mm -hmm got 30 days of work into it. And so in some cultures like Germany, for example, um, was a great example. Like they just, they find that insulting. Right. You mean you I know? can't do my job? Yeah. You know, so like you said, you want 30 days from now, boss. So 30 days from now, it will be like clockwork on your desk. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's just about just setting expectations. And it was probably leading in Germany for about three years before somebody actually 
help me to see that. Oh no. And it was, uh, it was actually a French guy who had worked for a, both a German company and American company. And he was like, you've got to like, you know, this, have you noticed this? Because mm-hmm. it, it wasn't, it wasn't the case in France. So it was somewhat, it was something somewhat unique to German. So I think it's hard to really generalize. There is a good book about, um, called when cultures collide mm-hmm. uh, that's around for a while that gives some general advice on how different cultures, uh, you know, clumped together like Middle Eastern and, you know, Mediterranean cultures versus the kind of Nordic countries, different things about how people perceive time. I, f- I felt that was useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's probably, yeah, to really get, it, it's, it's difficult to really generalize. Right. Well, and for someone who might be working with someone in another culture, you know, I, I strongly encourage you do your research, you know, check into, you know, what, you know, especially you don't want to insult somebody, you know, things like this. I remember um, years ago when I lived in Colorado, I taught a communications class at Metro State University. And one of the things we talked about was cross-cultural things. And and I had a student in there who was Asian. Mm-hmm. And he said, so many things that Americans do are insulting, you know, and, and some of that is that brusqueness, that curtness, all those various yeah. things. And, and like one of the things he told us, and I still, rem- obviously I still remember this and I actually do it as much as I can now, just because I, you know, he, he brought this up. He said, your business card. He said, you know, in, you know, what we do is we, you know, I, I hand you my business card and you glance at it and you throw it aside. Mm-hmm. Well, to them, it's an extension of them. And so I basically, you know, you just disregarded me. And so he said, you know, what you do is you take the business card, you look at it, and then you put it in a special place. You know, you don't cram it in your pocket. You don't toss it on the side of the desk. And I really thought about that. And more than anything, I thought, you know, by taking it and reading it, I'm Mm -hmm. looking it over. And so I'm probably going to hopefully remember the person's name, might give me their title, you know, something to ask them about, some various things like that. But I, I liked that idea. And, you know, it yeah. was just one of those things. It was like, oh. Okay. And you accept That's it with two hands right. and make sure that you're squarely faced yes. towards them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and and it's a, it is very much a show of respect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that it's uh, deal, dealing in different countries is really kind of fascinating. I think that that's partly, you know, the more we can communicate and, you know, th- there's, when I did that, 360 survey, probably about 10 of the people who responded were from a different country. Mm. And, uh, and I think that that's, there's just, as leaders, we all have blind spots and mm-hmm. really the more, the biggest thing we can do to uncover those blind spots is, uh, is, you know, the, the, everything we can do to just uncover those blind spots is what's going to make us better leaders. I, I had an example just the other day. I facilitate a lot of CEO groups and, um, one of the guys who's maybe who's a friend of mine, he's a, one of the most sarcastic people I know. And, uh, and I was generally raised in kind of a sarcastic, uh, environment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, and I opened the meeting there, you know, there's about eight CEOs there, two women, six men. And, uh, and I made a sarcastic joke about this guy, you know, Bob, let's call him. So, and so injured because this is, uh, we try to keep a really open conversation in these. And like one of the women interrupted, uh, just like about a minute later. And she goes, you know, Hey, Krista, when you said that to Bob, you know, yeah, it was kind of funny, but it was just kind of harsh. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so I didn't know if I, I was like, I don't know if I really want to talk um, because if Krister says something like that to me, I would mm-hmm. feel hurt. Now, she didn't know that I had kind of a good right. relationship with this individual outside mm-hmm. of those meetings and that we kind of, you know, had already established that kind of banter. Mm-hmm. So 
sarcasm is often one of those things that's kind of a blind spot for many leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, especially men, that it can just shut people down, Mm -hmm. um, that other people aren't willing to talk when when the leader is sarcastic. So it's, it's kind of another one of those language things to just unfortunately just really eliminate sarcasm in the workplace. Well, and sometimes we don't even realize we're being sarcastic or, you know, or that we have a a tone. It's funny. I'm always telling my husband, tone, tone, watch that tone. You know, he'll say, I didn't have a tone. (laughs) (laughs) You had a tone when telling me tone. I know, you know, and, and, but we see that right where, you know, I'm thinking, no, I just said X. And somebody else took it as why because of the tone or the body language or all of those various things. Yeah. And so, gosh, all it does is just make stuff really confusing, which is why what we want to do is get your book. So tell us a little bit about your book. It's not out yet, but tell us about it. So the book is, is the, the language of leadership, words to transform how we lead, live, and love. Uh, it's uh, going to be released in spring of 2019. Uh, people can learn more about the book and about me at uh, Christer.com. Uh, that's Christer with a K. And then I will have, I will have a, a page on my website specifically for your listeners. So okay. at Christer.com slash business power hour. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and they'll be able to get access to sign up for the pre-release of the book and uh, there'll be other content. One of the things with the book is, so it really goes through each of the different languages of leadership. So mm-hmm. like curiosity, language of empathy, uh, language of employee engagement. Uh, and then it also gets into how some of these languages of leadership apply in leading in a personal setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and along with it, I'll have videos and uh, exercises on the website that people can use uh, to kind of share um, some of these languages of leadership with other people. So if they have, you know, someone they're working with specifically and they need to help educate someone else um, on just a part of the book um, mm-hmm. in order to have better conversations, then there'll be kind of videos on the website that people can use uh, for that purpose as well. Well, if someone wants to work with you, what, why would they hire you? You know, you, you obviously are a public speaker, so there's that avenue. But if they want you to consult, how would you be working with them in that area? So what I, I work with, I work with exclusively CEOs of entrepreneurial companies, mm-hmm. uh, typically between 50 and 500 employees that are growth, growth organizations. Um, and I do a combination of strategic planning and leadership development for the top leaders of those organizations. Um, based on my experience growing our company, we grew 3,000% from kind of 15 people to hundreds of people in eight mm-hmm. countries. Uh, if you're a growing organization, the... Uh, the most expensive cost is outgrowing your existing leadership team and having to hire people from the outside. So I help CEOs uh, and top leaders uh, who are running business units to uh, grow their existing leaders faster, but then also grow their businesses faster than they would uh, right. otherwise. Well, we didn't even talk about that topic of outgrowing leaders because <laughs> that certainly happens all the time. Yes, yes. Well, Krister, this has been great, and I would love to have you on again, especially once the book comes out so that we can discuss it in more detail. Um, But again, tell people how they find you and connect with you online. Yeah, you can come to my website at kristerwithak.com, so K-R-I-S-T-E-R.com. I love that you don't try and make people remember your last name. (laughs) <laughs> I, I forget it sometimes. So. <laughs> well, I am Deb Creer. I've been having a great time talking with Krista Underbach. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour. 
hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.